Thank you, guys. Uh, let's, uh, let's stand in reverence to God's holy word, if we would. Today's text comes from John chapter 15, verses 11 through 17. And the word of the Lord says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. I tell you, this week as I prepared for the message today, it was one that I sort of struggled with because it was one where I feel like I have fallen short a lot as a believer and as a pastor and as a husband and a family member and a friend. And and so my sincere hope today is that you all will not look to me to be the perfect model of all of this, okay? Uh, Christ is the model of all of this. Um, I was uh, having an online conversation a while back with someone. I had posted something on Facebook about uh, go to church somewhere this Sunday, find a church that preaches the gospel. And my uh, a coworker responded back to it and said, uh, yeah, and also find a church who, uh, that models the gospel. And so we had a discussion about that and what that might look like to her. And she said it would look like a uh, church that would uh, welcome and affirm all people. And I said, well, certainly at our church, we welcome all people. We don't affirm all ideas. We affirm Scripture and what's in Scripture and the truth of the Scripture. And uh, she didn't feel like that modeled the gospel, uh, but she uh, couldn't find anything biblical to back that up. But, uh, but so uh, I want you to know today, though, and I guess my point in rambling through this is, is uh, I'm not the perfect model of these things I'm going to talk to you about today, okay? Uh, uh, someone said, I've heard said several times over the years, if you can't do, teach, all right? So, uh, so I'm teaching today, okay? And, and I, I'm saying that from the bottom of my, of my heart with all sincerity. To it's sort of explain to you where we are today, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They've shared their last meal together. And in less than 48 hours, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's told them that he's going away, and he's offering them words of comfort and assurance. Now, we've been breaking down this text sort of word by word for a couple of weeks now, and today we're going to unpack it a little bit in a different way. We're going to go right into verse 16, which is sort of where we've settled in the text from the last couple of weeks. In verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So what we're going to do today is we're going to sort of treat this statement that Jesus is making sort of like the meat in a sandwich, all right? It is the main thing he's saying. And we're going to look at the words around this statement, at other things that Jesus is saying, and other things he said throughout Scripture 
to figure out the answer to a question. Okay? Okay, Jesus, you've chosen me. What have you chosen me for? What does being chosen by Jesus look like when it's applied to the life of a believer? So what we're going to do is look at the text, and we're going to compile a short list of things that Jesus chooses us for, things that he calls us to both experience and to live out in our lives. So here we go. What did Jesus choose us for? If you are a note taker, this sermon will make you brilliantly happy. It's a three-point sermon, not my normal 9.75 points for a Sunday, okay? So uh, we have three points today. Number one is this. We are chosen for joy. John 15, 11 says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, I want you to understand, and we talked about this last week, God is concerned about our obedience to his word. And we discussed that in depth last week. There are moral standards in the Bible that God fully expects us to be serious about. God is serious about sin, okay? So he expects us to be serious about sin. He is serious about it to the point that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, okay? But if we only read Scripture as a rule book, as a checklist of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's, then we miss out on the very heartbeat of God, okay? God is ultimately concerned for his glory, all right? But he's also concerned about our joy, all right? Now, this isn't a feel-good sermon, all right? This is not a TBN sermon, I promise you, all right? But what we're getting at is this. This, this isn't my opinion. Jesus just said that he is speaking what he's speaking to the disciples so that their joy may be full. Jesus said it. So we're going to let Scripture speak for Scripture to drive this point home, okay? What is the gospel? Luke 2.10 says, Good news that will cause great joy. What is the goal of reading the Bible? Jeremiah 15.16 said, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy. And my heart's delight. What is the goal of prayer? Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete, John 16, 24 says. What is the goal of fellowship with other believers? Second John 12 says, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. What does it mean when you experience trials in life? James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. What does it mean when you suffer? Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What is death if you are faithful to Christ? Matthew 25, 21 says, Enter into the joy of your master. So, listen, one of the greatest benefits of the words of Jesus, one of the central purposes of the Bible, is that our hearts would be flooded with joy. Now, this stands in direct contrast to the 
utter despair that our world is saturated with. Our world is a very angry and depressed place. And we see that play out in the media all the time. It's a very angry world we live in. If anybody dares disagree with anything somebody says or thinks, we get triggered, right? We get upset. Like, if I say I like fried catfish and hush puppies and I post that on social media and I like to chase it down with a Diet Coke and Casey Cooper over there posts right after it and he says, well, I prefer a nice uh, grilled tilapia with lemongrass and asparagus spears and maybe a seltzer water because it's so much better for your health. Then boom, I cancel you, Casey Cooper. I delete you from my friend list. How dare you suggest that I was not made to eat fried catfish instead of that bougie lemongrass fish you're eating. We live in an angry world. And if you don't believe it, forget going to a political rally or a protest. Go to an athletic event for 10 and under girls. It is shocking how angry and ruthless people can be. We live in a really bitter and frustrated world. A world sort of emotionally charged by how we feel in the moment. We forget a lot of times that joy is not the same as happiness. We're not always going to be happy. Jesus never promised that. Happiness is circumstantial and in the moment. But joy is being able to maintain hope and inner peace even when the world around you is angry and hateful and depressing and broken to pieces and dark. If you have hope in Jesus, then sorrow or suffering doesn't have to be the opposite of joy. They can coexist. We can mourn what's going on in the world around us or even mourn our own suffering, but at the same time experience joy Because we have hope in Christ. And here's the proof. Here in this upper room, when Jesus says those words that he said in the text today, he is on his way to the cross. He is less than 48 hours from crucifixion. He is about to endure torture. He is going to be spat upon stripped naked, beaten with whips, have thorns shoved into his forehead, have his face torn apart by being whipped by sharp reeds, and he's going to die an excruciatingly painful death. And what's he got on his mind? John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. At the very doorstep of suffering, Jesus desired that we would not have just a little joy, but a fullness of joy, a ridiculous, overflowing, abundant joy, a full joy. How can you have joy when you're about to be crucified and joy to share? How can you have joy when your doctor says cancer? 
How can you have joy when you find out that your spouse has cheated on you? How can you have joy when your family is full of conflict? How can you have joy when work will not go right? How can you have joy when your kids are quarantined again? How? How can you have joy during suffering? We remember Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Can I tell you, I've been through difficult times in life where somebody came up to me and said, Hey, remember Romans 8, 28, all things work together for those who love God. And I wanted to look at him and say, I want to knock your lights out right now. But what I did was say, Thank you so much. I love you in the Lord. And so... But this is what, it, what it's saying here, though. Even our suffering, even our worry, even our pain is a movement toward joy in Christ. The proof of that is the cross. God used an instrument of torture and pain and death and brutalized Jesus with it. But the end result is that many men would be set free from their sins. Hebrews 12, 2. Look to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So a momentary affliction for Jesus resulted in in an eternal salvation and joy for many. Jesus chose us for joy. If we look a little deeper into the Scripture, we see also Jesus chose us for love. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13 and 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now this command from Jesus sounds really familiar. Because he said something like this before. If you look back in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus replies to this question with a story about a man, probably a Jew, who is traveling on the Jericho Road. Now, the road, we know this story. It's called the Good Samaritan. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho winds through the mountains. And in Jesus' time, it was famous for being full of thieves. Uh, the Jews called it the Bloody Way. So here's the story. There's a man traveling on the road. Some robbers attack him, beat him up, steal everything he has, leave him for dead. A priest, the Hebrew priest, comes walking by. He sees him, and being a good and holy church person, he didn't want to touch anybody that's bloody and beat up. Okay? So he keeps walking. A Levite comes by, 
who's also a really good, decent church person. And he does the same thing. And then comes a Samaritan. Now, the Jews hated Samaritans. They considered them inferior half-breeds. Not only would Jews not speak to Samaritans, they wouldn't even speak about Samaritans. They considered them less than human. But it was the Samaritan who showed compassion and he showed love. He sees a man in need and he knows that he has some deep, deep differences with this individual. But he helps that man in a lovingly, excessive, overflowing way. He gives sacrificially to help this man in need regardless, in spite of their differences. So Jesus is telling this story to a man who wanted to be a Christian. And Jesus told him that the way to do this was to love God and to love your neighbor. And the man responds and says, who is my neighbor? So what he's doing is he's trying to narrowly define who he should love. So who should you love? Should you only love people who see the world just like you do? Should you only love people who have the same hobbies as you? Should you only love people that you like? Should you love people who are different races than you? Should you love people who are in different age groups than you? Should you love people who vote differently from you? Should you love someone who has hurt you or done you wrong or made you angry? Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on and defines what that love looks like. In verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. The Greek word for love here is agapeo. And we've talked about this for about two weeks in a row now. This is not a kind of love that's just reserved for people we like. This is not a kind of love that's just reserved for people that make us happy. This is not the kind of love that, for people that we have common history with. This is not the kind of love for people we have common interests with or people whom we get along with. According to Romans 5, this agapeo love is for people, in terms of God, for people who are enemies of God, who are ungodly, and who are sinners. This is a love that does not let you go. It knows all of your scars and all of your moral failures and all of your poor choices and all of the skeletons in your closet. And he loves us anyway and gives his life for us. Jesus died for sinners. Not for just the good church folks who wear the right clothes and show up on Sunday and wear their Sunday school attendance pins and have it all together and never spill salsa on their white shirt when they go to the Mexican restaurant. He died for sinners. Sinners. He died for the weak and the ungodly and for sinners like you and for sinners like me. When he walked the earth, Jesus taught men to turn the other cheek and to walk the extra mile 
and to offer no resistance to humiliation and slander and injury and to forgive sin 70 times 7. He openly engages and forgives the town prostitute. He has dinner with drunks. He cries at funerals. He plays with rowdy children. He defends adulterous women. And he spends the night in the home of Zacchaeus, the biggest cheat in town. And in dying on the cross, Jesus gives himself completely away and devotes his entire being to people who despise him enough to destroy him. He worries about his disciples who leave him when he needs them the most. He is gentle with Pontius Pilate, who gives him over to the mob demanding his death. He comforts mourning women as he carries his cross to die. He offers pardon to an undeserving thief as he dies. Nailed to a cross, blood pouring from his wounds in his final breath, he says, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. His heart was broken for what breaks our hearts. He understood rejection and loneliness and abandonment and pain. And people that he would call his children abused him in unimaginable ways. And he whispered forgiveness on them all. He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus chose us for love. He chose us to love the way he loves. And he drives this point home by saying, We're chosen to bear fruit. Jesus challenges us to love with this agapeo love, this type of indiscriminate love that is the mark of a Christian, the fruit by which a follower of Christ is known. John 15, 16, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, you think automatically about Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. We we talked about this a few weeks back, and we talked about how it's really interesting how Paul didn't talk about those things in the plural, even though it's several different words. He talks about them in the singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you don't have self-control, you're probably not going to have gentleness. If you don't have gentleness, you're probably not going to have kindness. If you don't have patience, you're not going to have peace. If you don't have peace, you're not going to have joy. If you don't have joy, you're not going to have love. So all of those things are one thing, one fruit that we as Christians are chosen to bear. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts that God gives. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he establishes love as the culmination of all gifts. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not arrogant or boastful or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Uh, Of all this fruit, all these gifts 
the greatest and internal and external marker of a follower of Christ is love. Love begins with God and it flows from Him to us and then to those around us. John 13, 35. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Now, there is a general consensus out in the world that if you aren't accepting and affirming of every religious idea, every pop culture trend, and inclusive toward every form of living and acting, then you are not loving. You're hateful. But love is a lot more difficult than that. Love is more than just unconditional approval of everyone and everything, okay? The problem with this sort of approval of approving everything is that it isn't love at all. And we know it isn't love because it doesn't require any sacrifice. A lot of y'all are married. How, how many of you would say, just unequivocally, right now, you've had a perfect marriage? Anybody other than my sister over here? And Nick, of course. Nick, Altry, and Megan. Um, well, Megan, that's because you married a perfect guy. I mean... Uh, how many of you might, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you might say you have tried for 10 years or more to fix the person you're married to? Because Brittany will sure tell you that about me. How's that working out for you? It's not, is it? Because we can't. We can't. So what we do is we love the way Jesus loved. We love intentionally. We press into love. Every day we make a conscious decision to love. Jesus loves because God is love. That's what he is and that's what he does. But it is hard. Sometimes being loving means you don't affirm something in someone else. Sometimes being loving means being willing to be rejected. Sometimes being loving means being willing to lay down your life for someone else. You might have to sacrifice your time and your comfort and your preferences or even your reputation. Because love is hard. It's easy for us to love our kids and for us to love our grandkids because they treat us nicely. They do. But the hard work is in loving those who don't always agree with you and who don't always treat you nicely. I've said it before up here, and I'll say it again. You know, sometimes uh, sometimes Brittany and I will be fighting, and and I'll uh, say something really intelligent like, I don't know why you get so angry at me all the time. Uh, I can hang out with Jason Luke, and he thinks I'm awesome. 
So don't do that. But love is hard work. It's hard work. What if love means bearing burdens for people that we disagree with, we'd rather not be bothered with? What if loving someone means they don't love us in return? What if it means they might use us or harm us or speak poorly of us? What if, means, what if it means loving someone who disagrees with you about COVID or politics? Or if they're ungrateful and they don't deserve your love? What if it means disagreeing with someone whose lifestyle or their attitudes directly contradict the Bible? What if loving someone means loving someone who is unlovable? Unlovable. If the blood of Christ can bridge the chasm between my sinfulness and God's holiness, then the love of God can conquer anything. If God can bring me here today, a UGA grad and fan, and I can stand on the same platform with Lisa Walker, who cheers for Auburn, love can conquer anything. I'm not sure she's going to heaven, but I love her. <laughs> love sometimes means loving those that we don't like. For Jesus, love means loving sinners. And he is holy. So loving each other as Jesus loves us, that's the mark of a disciple. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. When we were undeserving and ungrateful and unlovely and disagreeable, Christ died for us. He didn't love us and die for us because we were holy and because he was enamored with us. There's a song that they play on Christian radio a lot and it uses a line and I have loved this song in the past but a while back, I talked with June Moon about it, I talked with Brittany about it a while back, there's a line in it that says, you didn't want heaven without us. So you brought heaven down. Listen, Jesus didn't come to earth and die on the cross because he wanted to be your boyfriend. He came to earth and he died on the cross because he is just and sin will be punished. But he also came because he is merciful. And so he offers himself as the propitiation, as the payment for all of our sins. And He does this in love. And when He does it, He makes us holy. Galatians 3.27 says, We have taken on Christ as a garment. Here's love. I'm cold and I'm dying. And a man comes and he gives me his coat. And he dies in my place. 
See, the gospel, you can think of it as a clothing exchange. I give Christ my rags and my sin, and He wears them on the cross. He clothes me in His righteousness, and I take Him on so that when God looks at me, He no longer sees my depravity, and He no longer sees my sinfulness, but He sees the beauty and the loveliness and the perfection of Christ. Jesus loved us enough to steer us away from the wrath of God and into peace with God so that we can enjoy God forever. Jesus chose us to experience His love and to pour out His love. Jesus chose us to bear fruit. I'm going to ask you to stand. We'll do one more song together. The good news of the gospel is this. That Jesus Christ took the punishment for all of our sins on the cross so that we don't have to fear God's judgment anymore, but we can enjoy God forever. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you need Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come. If you're here and you need prayer today, I'm going to invite you to come. We all need Him more and more every day. Come.